0: Welcome to Humanity Evolve with your host, Katherine Calarco. This program will bring your life, family, and community together by focusing on the new technologies and innovations that define your world in an open and relaxed forum of ideas and discussion. Now, here is Katherine Calarco.
1: Welcome to today's show. This is Catherine Kalarko on Humanity Evolve. And today we're back to one of my favorite subjects, which is our oceans, and specifically about the reefs. It is phenomenal the impact that global warming is having on our oceans. And the fact that our planet is a blue planet matters. All of us have a role to play in enabling us to have a thriving ocean environment and reef environment and to really impact the economic value of that. I don't know, many of you probably realize how much, econo- or how much our economy is based on our local marine ecosystems, our, the reefs around the world, and how many people are impacted by these in around the world. So today's guest is one of these amazing guys that has gotten involved in really making a difference for the reefs around the world and doing it from an economic development, from a social change, and from a, a world perspective. Christopher Lafranchi is... A, well, founder of one reef and he's he's done that to take local uh, get involved in locally controlled coral reef conservation he's been principally responsible for fundraising organizational vision and design and negotiating agreements with micronesian communities who own coral reefs and have and are committed to conservation goals these are the people at the coal face who rel- rely on the environments that are polluted and affected by people in thousands of miles away and how he has worked with these NGOs and and many organizations to create global conservations by connecting us with the people who own these reefs. Chris it's a great honor to have you aboard the show today thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much Catherine
2: it's my pleasure to be here.
1: So, you know, my show is dedicated to helping all of us to thrive who we are and also enable the gift within each of us to prosper and by sharing the wisdom of people around the world and to nurture what what is right with us. So I'd love to hear the story of how you were, you envisioned this One Reef concept and how you took it from, you know, how you made it what it is today. So tell us the story and, and what inspired you to get involved in this?
2: Well, that's a long story, I guess. From my childhood, I, I started a kind of a relationship with the ocean. I lived in, uh, near the ocean in Southern California where I grew up. And spent a lot of time in the ocean, sailing and diving, and a bit of surfing and so on. At some point, watched probably too much Jacques Cousteau and was <laughs> just completely enthralled by the underwater realm there. And I had a exactly. second grade teacher who, who enabled me by giving me seashells she, she had found on her vacations in the Caribbean. So that's kind of like the humble beginnings, uh, which eventually led to One Reef.
1: Awesome. And so, the, so when you, um, you you got involved in uh, natural resource economics. So, how does that relate to impacting the, the preservation of our reefs and our, our marine ecosystems?
2: Yeah, well, that wasn't something that was so obvious to me at the beginning. In the beginning, uh, like a lot of kids who love the ocean and, again, watched a lot of Jacques Cousteau and had those images, uh, I, I, I think we all did. <laughs> we probably all did
1: back then. Yeah, I'm kidding myself, but, yeah, we, we uh, need to yeah. we need to be the next generation Jacques Cousteaus for others now, right? It, it
2: was fantastic, and um, you know, I had a father who was a medical scientist. I grew up around a lot of scientists who kind of cultivated the sciencey part of it, which I really enjoyed. Um, and at some point, of course, decided I wanted to be a marine biologist, like a lot of kids in the sixth grade at that time. Eventually, went off to college and studied biology, and then went to the University of Hawaii. They have a great uh, marine biology program there. And something didn't seem exactly right to me. I was enjoying it, but at some point, I think I couldn't quite uh, see myself as a college professor uh, just teaching these things. And that that was especially true when I started to learn about the changes that were happening in the ocean, and people were studying them <clears throat> quite a lot, even, even back then in the, in the 90s. And yeah. At some point, um, I was collecting a lot of data. I was, was actually in charge of studying the reproductive biology of these marine shrimps, which were being cultivated uh, on a pretty large economic scale in places like Thailand and Ecuador. Right. And <clears throat> so at some stage, I was asked by, uh, by people to, to evaluate the economic impacts of, of expanding production. And I realized that this was going to destroy a lot of critical habitat that I, of course, re- recognize as a biologist at that time, for local fisheries, um, and some of the economists at the same time were approaching us at the lab and saying, "We'd really like your data." And by the way, would you like to take an economics course? Mm-hmm. I did. I, I liked it. Um, and at some point, they successfully, you know, made the case that Chris, if you're if you're really more interested in sort of managing and being a steward of these things, not just studying them, uh, you might consider economics because it's really. Uh, These days about managing human beings and and our impacts uh, around the globe, like the impacts from these shrimp farms that are burgeoning in places uh, like Thailand and Ecuador and Vietnam at that time. So I ended up kind of switching in Hawaii to to, uh, the economics track in graduate school.
1: Hmm. And so when you're talking about the economic impact when you're studying the data, I think, you know, for for people who may not understand the shrimp farming industry, how, how, what was the impact of that sort of like it did it, were they expanding like the, I mean, how did that, it seems like, oh, farming shrimp would be a good idea. Um, So what, what was the impact of that and what data were you collecting?
2: Yeah, that's true. At you know, at a glance, i looked like, wow, oh, this is great. And these yeah. certainly need the economic development. And then when I took a closer look, I realized that their plan, which, you know, made sense from a business point of view strictly, was to to sort of mow down all these um, uh, these mangrove swamps. They called them swamps back then, mangrove areas. Which yeah. Know, really weren't supporting human populations, towns, cities, and so on, and weren't farms, so people kind of thought of them as a bit of a wasteland back then, uh, but some of us were saying, well, look, um, you're catching fish offshore, and a lot of those fish spend some early days of their lives in these mangrove swamps. They're really important habitats, so if you end up mowing them all down uh, to create these earthen ponds, which w- were used to grow out the shrimps in the production scheme, uh, you're really going to be harming your offshore fisheries. There's going to be a big trade-off.
1: Wow, yeah. Yeah, it is interesting because I think there's a lot of human error is made with good intention, right? So you're actually going, well, we need to I- increase economic development. We want to grow a shrimp rather than farm them from the ocean, which is, or, you know, co- take them out of the ocean, which again is also a scraping of the bottom of the ocean and collecting everything, which is also very wasteful. And not realizing the economic or the ecosystem impact of actually ruining the, your, your nursery for the larger reef by actually creating a shrimp farm you know um, so I think there's the the wisdom of actually understanding the ecosystem impact of what you're doing and try to optimize um, for the least amount of negative impact at this point right
2: yeah that's right so and even at that time we were going to a sort of an off-site facility where we'd grow out these shrimp in these um, kind of research ponds and Even after a couple of years, we started to experience a lot of disease problems because we were Mm. growing out the shrimp in super (laughs) high concentrations. Yeah, and So that also, in the picture, they started realizing, well, these these guys are going to mow down their mangroves and they're going to create these shrimp farms. And after five years, they're going to run into disease problems.
1: Yeah. Uh, And a lot of the things
2: that we now know is kind of stock and trade challenges in the aquaculture industry.
1: right. Right, yeah, and hopefully some of them have actually uh, learned from that. So did the data, in terms of that data and, and, and sort of the natural resource economics or the economic impact of that, was there a particular solution from the data that mm-hmm. kind of enabled you to take that further into, okay, how do we actually, from an economics or holistic point of view, how, how do we actually work with these local areas to to assure that they can actually sustainably live off the ocean?
2: Well, at that point in the economics, uh, we were really struggling to figure out how to how to do these um, project analyses, large scale project analyses, where we would try to account for the environmental impacts and th- which could be translated into economic impacts. So, if you if you removed the mangroves, could you estimate what that would do to the natural populations that were being caught? You know, is there a net gain, or are you actually going to lose uh, economic <laughs> economically with the water and you know, in, in graduate school, these are the kind of things you do, and right. thinking not just about shrimps, but about cultivating lots of of animals that have an effect on the oceans.
1: Yeah, huh? And so, you, um, part of the work that you've done has been in the, overseas. You've lived in 12 different countries in Africa and Indonesia. I'd love to learn a little bit more about what you've seen and learned i mean taking the data from a graduate school program and then actually being in <clears> the in the in the country actually looking at it from their perspective what were some of the insights you understood about human beings and managing them as well as being able to preserve our oceans
2: well when i graduated i had an opportunity to go to the country of namibia in southwest Africa, mm. and um, I worked there for the World Wildlife Fund in the government of Namibia, and the government was struggling a lot with uh, poaching of elephants, especially along the northern border with Angola, which at that time was involved in a pretty fierce civil war, and yeah. um, and so they sent a, a bunch of us up to sort of study the situation, collect some data, natural resource use patterns and enforcement. Uh, technically, at that time, the government owned all the megafauna, including the elephants. And huh. tourism is super important to Namibia's economy. Uh, and despite that, they were just carrying people in the environment department who just clearly didn't want to see all those megafauna poached and eaten. Right. Um We came back right away as as economists. I was just fortunate to work with some brilliant people from England, from, from the UK at that time. And we just basically said to government a few words, which is, you need to make the elephants worth more alive than dead because they're worth more dead to people right now. Um huh. uh, so how can we do that? And that started a very interesting conversation and it started the, sort of the next generation of of my learning things that I certainly could never have learned in graduate school
1: right and so how, how do they make the the how do they ha- make that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah.
2: yeah, at first we kind of took the conventional economics route as we were taught in graduate schools around, right. around the world. Well, we'll just we'll do an economic valuation. It's not a, not a bad thing to do. How much, right. from the perspective of, of the country, are these animals worth? Uh, and then we'll start thinking about kind of policy prescriptions. That would be the conventional right. And we did that. Uh, and then the World Wildlife Fund said, well, that's great. So we're, we're thinking about more specifically, what kind of policies we might work on with the government, why don't you go collect some more data? In fact, why don't you go, Chris, all over the, the northern part of the country and, and and try to talk about the value of elephants, economically and otherwise, with local communities who are up there, because we know they're an important part of the equation here. Uh, and that's really where I had some huge epiphanies, because yeah, um, people received us well, and we talked a lot about who we were and identified ourselves, people who were trying to help with the conservation of elephants, and everyone agreed that it was a problem. They would clearly noticed, especially lions and elephants being poached and killed um, in, in these conflicts with humans, not just as a result of the war going on over the border, but um, for other reasons. And at some, they were kind to me, but I didn't learn much until some very... Uh, very wise older people pulled me aside for dinner one evening and, and took me out to their sorghum and, and maize fields, uh, which in Namibia it's difficult. It's difficult to make a living growing these these crops that are rain-fed, and in certain years uh, they experience a drought. People can, can get close to the verge of starvation. Right. Um, and so we're eating dinner, and all of a sudden the, the young men at the table had to get up and leave to go. Uh, out into the field where they were going to sleep for the evening and they they were I was told that this is because the crop is pretty close to being point at which they're going to harvest it, and occasionally marauding elephants would come through and virtually destroy the crop, would raid the crop, so they're out there to have fires, and they'd bang pots and pans together to, you know, deter the elephants from doing that, and then the picture started becoming clear as to why I was invited to dinner, and they said, (laughs) well, (laughs) as much as we appreciate you doing this, Chris, we we need you to understand the reality from our point Mm -hmm. of view, which is we're just trying to make a living here, nothing against the elephants, right? Um, but if if you're just going to go around talking about about the economic value from a national perspective, it's really going to kind of fall on deaf ears. So I realized I needed to go back to square one and rethink the whole thing,
1: right? And actually make it relevant for the individuals who are actually affected or have a uh, impacted either way by the by the the elephants. So what what was the solution? How did you actually uh, what what was the insights these elders provided for you, and what changed after that?
2: Well, to their credit, they were so sort of jovial about the whole thing. I would not have been, because it's it's kind of virtually life or death, but here they were kind of joking around like, oh, go ahead and save your elephants, Chris. We're going to save our food source. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so I went back, and and through lots of discussions, it wasn't necessarily my idea, but what emerged was this uh, this notion of creating new legislation uh, throughout the country, which... um, in, in places where it's sensible, would, would actually grant use rights to the megafauna of Africa uh, for what we call, in economics terms, non-consumptive use. You're not going to kill the animals. You're going to raise them and, and encourage tourists to look at them and, and pay money to do that. Uh, you're going to um, create game farms uh, in places where you're, you're going to harvest some of the game to be sold. Uh, there are other beneficial uses of wildlife that are more or less invariably sort of compatible with nature conservation. But none of that could really happen unless the local population really had a stake in it. So mm. we were working with the government to, to try and figure out how to design legislation which would do just that.
1: And so they actually benefited? The, the sorghum farmers benefited from the reserves for elephants? or?
2: Well, they created a program. What they said is communities um, who meet certain requirements can sign up and, and, and make a bid to take over the... Um, Uh, use rights and and create businesses and then be kind of connected with business entities from Bintook, the local, or sorry, the capital city there and, and it worked fairly well and now I, I just saw someone from the movie at a conference at Susonia not long ago and they were talking about creating a people's park in Africa which would actually have economic benefits awesome. I'm not sure how that would work yet but I'm <laughs> happy to think they're still progressing with
1: that. Yeah, they're moving it forward you know what's interesting is that you and I met at the um, Chasing Coral um, a movie where they, they really talk about the dedication of individuals to make a difference and what was interesting about this was that this was a film about um filming the bleaching of the coral and uh really seeing something die in front of you in a matter of short period of months and explaining how the coral is a living system and i thought what was especially profound in that is how much it affected the people here here's the the the, the people were in, in the film were so dedicated that they you know jerry rigged the technology and tried to figure out how to make it work and they had failures and then they said well we're still motivated so we're going to we're going to fix this and we're going to do it manually. So they went in and photographed, you know, 25 photos a day manually for months to get this, this filming done. And and I mean, the dedication is overwhelming and the emotional connection they have to these environments is phenomenal. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, d- d- that is sort of an aspect of what you're trying to do. It, it seems like, this this uh, championshipness. How can, you know, one of the things we're going to go to break soon. But one of the things I want to talk about after the break is really how do how does the the motivated, enthusiastic, passionate, technology savvy uh, communities around the world actually making a difference and saving and cr- increasing the awareness and telling these stories and actually enabling people to get involved. So after the break, we're going to come back and talk a bit about the examples that you have but I'd, I'd love to hear the insight that you gained out of watching this movie and, and, and showing it to the audience that you have in the minute or so that we've got left in, before the break. It's a fascinating
2: movie that I think makes people clearly understand the issue that's going on around the world. These Coral reefs, these fantastic ecosystems, which are being impacted at, at historically an incredibly fast rate and being stressed, dying, in some cases recovering, but dying on a massive scale. Are, it's very worrisome, um, but I think the other part of this is there's, there's kind of a silver lining. And, and a lot of these, uh, this big problem really has a fairly simple solution, which I'd, I'd love to tell you about more
1: awesome well that's a it, it's an amazing place to break so please stay with us after the break and hear how there is a silver line, li- lining in all this and that there is hope and that you can be involved in that um, i just want to encourage you to come back and join us for the conversation this is Catherine calarco with christopher la from uh, one reef we'll be back right after the break thank you so much
0: This is Humanity Evolve with Catherine Calarco. To reach our show today, please call in to 1-866-613-1612. Again, that's 1-866-613-1612. Or you may send an email to info at ccalarco.com. Now, back to Humanity Evolve.
1: Welcome back. This is Catherine Calarco, and I have Christopher LaFranchi with me today talking about how we can make a difference. Uh, He works with OneReef.org. And right before the break, we were talking about the movie Chasing Coral. It's a documentary from Netflix, and it it really describes a pretty traumatic uh, event, which is the bleaching of coral and, and the dying of a reef. And i to, you know, I love the ocean. So when I watched that film, it was quite emotional seeing it. And you really felt like, oh my God, is there hope? You know, this is there any way to stop this? You look at the heat maps from NOAA and other sources, and you see the phenomenal increase in the in the temperature of the oceans, and also in the it's it's how much energy is actually uh, or heat it's absorbing and so i, I just really wondered wow if there's hope and so right right before the break christopher was saying yeah there is a silver lining and you know after watching that film i want to know what it is so chris what is that silver lining
2: yeah so i would say you know based on what you read in the news every day um, the world's oceans are vast and they're threatened and that's very clear and And I know that from talking to my relatives and lots of people that people get this impression that protecting them can seem just extremely overwhelming. Um, But as someone who works on this as a social entrepreneur and works with a lot of really smart scientists, I can tell you that um, protecting the world's oceans, at least the coral reefs that I work on, is relatively straightforward. Um, about 25% of all marine life is found on coral reefs. That's one in four organisms. So it's, they're very special places from the perspective of, of all the species that find a home there. Um, and, and the other interesting aspect about reefs biologically is they're in very small spaces. Less than 0.1% of the ocean space is required um, for all the coral reefs that existed 50 years ago. That's a very small space. Yeah in the oceans. So what that means is that it's relatively easy to kind of keep tabs on them. They're not dispersed all over, you know, thousands and thousands of square miles or kilometers of oceans. And what we do is uh, is create these marine protected areas. And inside of these marine protected areas, if you pick the right places, places that have an incredible inherent productivity, and ecological productivity, protect them long enough, even for just a few years, things start to grow back very rapidly. And when they do, this sort of burgeonly life actually starts to spill out of the boundaries of these marine protected areas. And for, the, for, for people who fish, and those of us who make a living fishing or uh, taking tourists to, to view these places, um, the, the simple act of creating uh, science-based, uh, a science-based network of these protected areas is extremely powerful. And we know that creating smartly spaced marine protected areas across coral reef zones of the world can really protect much of marine biodiversity and, and help local communities that depend on them thrive.
1: Mm, wow, that's, that's amazing. You, know, you think of the Great Barrier Reef that you can see from space and the largest living organism on the on this planet. So, you know, this was affected uh, by this coral bleaching. What you're saying is that creating marine parks associated with this allows the fisheries to actually thrive. So, can you give us an example of where you've seen this work and some of the ways that you've been involved in using, you know, your team of amazing scientists as well as the local community to <clears throat> protect a reef? And what was the outcomes that you saw?
2: Sure. So, I mean, to be very honest and fair, uh, a lot of what reefs are experiencing today are really what we would call scientists a stress response. So, yeah. uh, when the water temperature increases even a little bit, it's like it would be kind of something like the temperature in your body increasing by a couple of degrees. It doesn't sound like a lot, but you become very sick, and at some point, three or four degrees, it becomes life-threatening. Coral reefs um, analogously experience kind of the same thing. So when a lot of heat is is absorbed and trapped in these big blobs of ocean and they float over coral reefs, if they they stay long enough on those reefs, they can really stress the organisms and cause the organisms to actually – expel um, the the, uh, algae that live in their tissues that supply uh, through photosynthesis about 90% of their energy. So when these coral polyps that build these giant reefs uh, that you can see from space expel the algae in their tissues, um, then they're at risk of, of dying unless they can reacquire new algae. Um, but even if they die off, what we've seen in this stress response in a reef and in places where we've worked, where everything else is healthy, is that once those reefs die, um, new corals from other places can then recruit, we call it recruitment, recruit to those areas and regrow again. What's mm-hmm. critical to know about the, this MPA system, the marine protected area system, is if you have healthy fish and microbial and invertebrate populations when a coral bleaching episode occurs, the likelihood... That that uh, stress will be endured and that the healing process will begin yeah. quickly and, and and go full course is much greater. So what we do is, is we work with some really great scientists from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, a nifty way of imaging reefs and studying their inherent resilience, we call it. We find right. the ones that seem to have the greatest inherent resilience, who are that are either owned or sort of um, uh, shepherded or stewarded by by communities that, that have an inherent incentive to do that. And when we find those conditions, we realize this is a great place to invest in reef protection because we can work with a local community that already wants to protect this place. And by simply striking a simple partnership agreement with them, we can ensure that these marine protected areas are scientifically um, designed and then designated in size and space. It doesn't guarantee that a reef will recover from the effects of climate change. But if you create this portfolio, of places like that, uh, we're sure, and we're starting to see the evidence of the fact that we're, that we're really making a difference in uh, which reefs remain healthy and sort of produce, maintain their fish populations that may suffer from certain stressors like a coral bleaching episode, but the stress might be less severe and might not last as long, and then recovery is faster.
1: So that's really what we're after. Hmm. It's fascinating. So what you're saying is that you identify resilient reefs that can withstand the stress and assure that their environment, their ecosystem of, of invertebrates and fish and the rest of it is, is sustained. And then you're able to see it recover and and grow back after a particular stressful event when these heat clouds come over them and, and they expel their algae. Is that kind of like what you're trying to do is is almost Construct a resilient reef.
2: That's right. We're, we're, we're trying to give the help. You kind of give nature a helping hand, I guess. Is, 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 you
1: know, <laughs> it's like human beings. I mean, we're, I'm in the stress business and tr- stress relief business. So I understand how you can actually change your uh, physiological uh, response to the stresses around you. And that having support or having uh, the right things within your life help you to recover quickly from stress events. So it's really adapting that philosophy is also really, Relevant to nature, and that you know we have a very stressed planet, and in order to for us to be the curators or caretakers of this planet, uh, we we need to be mindful of that, and 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 deploy techniques and uh, and wisdom to enable them to recover as best as possible. So yeah, uh, and when you work with these, uh, you know it says like there's 25 percent of the marine life. Is, is within these coral reefs. And um, those obviously link out to all the commercial fisheries. So uh, how does how do you protect that as well within these programs of just the reef itself, but, but also the fishing industry? Because I know you talked briefly about a program you're doing that is about protecting the local fisheries as well. Well,
2: more broadly, what we're trying to do is work with communities who um, who are willing to make a commitment to these marine protected zones and to uh, accepting a partnership with us and our scientists so that we can monitor changes over time. Uh, we also do socioeconomic monitoring because we want to understand how people are affected by reefs and we want to compare reefs where we're investing and, and how people are benefiting to similar places where, where we're not investing and, and see if we're making a difference. And, it's, and based on what we're learning, we're going to kind of maximize those benefits to people and, and really try to leverage that to drive really good management and stewardship of reefs in a, in a larger portfolio. Huh. Cool. And just to give you, a, you know an example of where the rubber meets the road here, so on reefs, um, you know, we have all these herbivorous fish. Those are your fish that eat algae. Right. Algae competes for space on a reef with corals. Um, you're not making any more space on these little coral reefs. So when the reef, when the corals die, if there aren't fish to consume algae, sometimes the algae can quickly overtake a place and right. prevent the corals from coming back. So right. you can understand why having healthy fish populations will enable coral recovery.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. The Those the tangs and the parrotfish or the parrotfish eat the coral. So it's actually would be the little butterfly fish or which fish actually eat the algae.
2: Oh, there are probably five or six major groups of herbivores like those little butterfly fish and some yeah. that are bigger. that control the algae, 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 algae populations. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah, the tangs on the—it's amazing because you can see clouds of and this is a—you can see clouds of these fish go from reef to reef as a and eat a little bit and then run over to the next one and eat a little bit. It's actually quite fascinating to watch how they how they move through a particular area. A little bit like um, I don't know—it's like a dance. It seems like when you're watching them underwater. The um, and so that when you guys are working with with this in terms of the data itself, do you connect with other NGOs or other organizations? Because I know Sylvia Earle creates these hope spots, and I know friends of mine have actually put in um, marine preserves in like uh, places like Saba and have seen a tremendous positive impact of uh, on local fisheries as well as the reef recovery. You know, do you do you collaborate with other NGOs as well, or is it primarily you're working with the local caretakers or the local population and you bring your research in with that
2: well when we started we mostly worked with local NGOs we really wanted the local populations to own this process as much as possible we only wanted to focus on supplying the pieces to the puzzle that they couldn't source themselves
0: right Uh, they needed some
2: additional financing they needed things like a finance plan they needed the scientists and they needed some simple technologies that could be adapted to me to be made affordable and usable by them Um, but for the most part, we work mostly with locals. Uh, uh-huh. But increasingly, now that we're started, we, we've sort of proven the model and we're really trying to scale it up. we started working at a more national scale in places like the Republic of Palau. And uh-huh. in that case, not only do we work with the national level all the way up to the office of the president in the case of Palau and the ministers underneath him, but also the Nature Conservancy and other large NGOs that tend to focus sometimes on demonstrating good community projects, but really more or less they they tend to focus on national policies and finance mechanisms. And so we're starting to work with them more and more because we wanna see the best way to scale up what we do most efficiently and and
1: fastest (laughs) right right and palau is such a great part of the world i still haven't gone there so that's got to be it's still on my i gotta get out there soon so tell me about uh, a story about the what's happening in palau you're working with a one of the particular chiefs correct is that in palau or tell me a little bit more of, of examples of what's happening there and and how you're working with these local uh the caretakers of the reef and and how they're actually what they're trying to do
2: uh, Palau is just this beacon of uh, of a very interesting and innovative work. So um, beautiful place. We were, I, I think when we first came up with the idea for these partnership agreements after this work in Africa, I told you about. Yeah, I mean, we were thinking, well, how do we really make this? Where can right. we really demonstrate this and scale it up quickly so that others could see it and maybe be influenced by it? Right. And before we even picked a place, some uh, a chief from Palau said, "I read something on a website. We started a project. We really need a partner to make it go because we're struggling to keep it going. Could you just come to Palau?" I thought it was a joke at first. A friend was playing <laughs> joke. I really did. It was oh, very, no. it was just, this very long formal traditional title. I'd never been to Palau. I thought was right. Fun. It, that was two thousand seven, and we negotiated the first agreement agreement uh, with a community there for the protection of an entire coral atoll on adjacent island in 2010, and things have really taken off from there. And then this summer, we spent a lot of time with the Office of the President and President Romangasau and himself with some of our script scientists and funders, because President Romangasau, to his credit, I think, has, has developed some incredible pro-ocean policies, which are enabling communities to see benefits from their reefs, uh, an incentive to, to go even farther to protecting them. But the tourism is the economy in Palau, and the president knows it. And in fact, nature tourism and marine nature tourism specifically is very important to them, so it makes a lot of sense.
0: Right. He's designated
2: about almost all of their waters as a marine protected zone, yeah. Um, he's, he's, he's kind of kicking out the commercial fishing operations there because he wants to capture more of the economic value and have greater control over commercial fishing and institute measures to reduce bycatch of birds and other animals. Right. Um, so he's, it's just
1: what's happening in Palau is really, again, a beacon of innovation. That, and that's why we're there. Wow, that's great. And you've seen it progress then for, I mean, since 2007 where you've been able to see this preserve come into effect. What have you noticed personally? I mean, what When you when you see these people take into it, what, what are some of the observations that you notice about the reefs and about the people? What happens? Well, I think
2: pretty clearly where Palau has done a good job of um, protecting their reefs, there's been good recovery from um, from various impacts. Some of them would be associated with climate change. So that's been a very good sign to see that their, their efforts are paying off. Their tourism industry is burgeoning. They are located in proximity to, I don't know, over a billion uh, potential tourists in China, mm-hmm. Taiwan, the Philippines, Japan, and so on. Um, and as that tourism has grown, the the importance uh, of maintaining a super healthy environment is not lost on them. So they keep uh, making sort of, uh, you know, meeting challenges by being very brave, I guess, with new legislation. I mean, yeah. to, to be a country of 22,000 people on the doorstep of China and kick out the foreign fishing fleet, that takes courage. Right. And, but what's going well is they're seeing
1: the benefits of doing that
2: and they're sticking yeah.
1: to it. Yeah. And they, I I think that's an important aspect is that you, no matter how large or how small you can, you can make a difference in terms of having the courage to stand up for a better ecosystem. And so are they seeing, um, are they seeing their fish sustainably grow? Are they, uh, are they allowing fishing or how are, how are they managing? Is it all just primarily scuba diving and snorkeling and uh, tourism? Well,
2: tourism has the greatest potential for economic growth in a conventional sense for them. But in terms of their sort of reconnecting with their traditional values, which are very important for the Palauans in my estimation, um, being able to protect your local reefs. and. Uh, they, they've seen the decline in important fish populations, important to, culturally and otherwise, yeah. for a long time. And I think um, they haven't seen as much recovery, to be honest, as they would like, except yeah. in pockets where uh, they know things are going extremely well and
1: uh-huh. in places
2: where they're just more lightly fished. So they can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. They're just trying to figure out how to get there. Right. But what's also great about them isn't just their... Um, their national policies, but they've done such a great job of recognizing the importance of local communities who actually own the reefs there, uh, which fits with their culture very well.
1: Yeah, we're in California, and we're lucky to be near the ocean. And, you know, we feel a great honor and pride and, and, and special relationship to the waters and the coastline that we have. And we do a lot to protect that. You know, imagine if your entire country was dependent and connected to the ocean in that same way and I, I remember the photos that you showed at the event of this of one of the chiefs and and how he's he was committed to this is his land this is his heritage this is his people this is who he is as a person and so his he was taking this action to get involved and 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 protect his reefs and create an observation area or a, a, there's a boat maybe you can tell us a little bit about that after the break but that the idea of him actually saying no uh, this is my birthright and this is who I am and what I'm going to do as a legacy and I'm going to be I'm going to help I'm going to make a difference and I'm not going to wait for someone to do it for me I'm going to I'm going to write a letter to Chris and say can you come and bring the stuff I need so I can actually make this happen I just think that's that's awesome and we can all do things like that right so after we come after after we come back after the break we're going to talk a little bit about some of these actions that you can take and uh, and things that you can support worldwide that enable the, the local communities to thrive and for the oceans that they depend on to thrive around them and how we can build the resiliency and manage both the reduction in the in in how we're increasing the temperature of the oceans but also on how we can manage these hot clouds of oceans that go across our 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 reefs so we're going to come back right after the break, break. this is a, a a special honor for me to have chris on the show today and talk about onereef.org and also things that anybody can do so thank you so much and come back after the break and hear more stories this is unbelievable stuff thank you so much this is Catherine Calarco on Humanity Evolve.
0: Are you finding your frequency? This is Humanity Evolve with Catherine Calarco. To reach our show today, please call in to 1-866-613-1612. Again, that's 1-866-613-1612. Or you may send an email to info at ccalarco.com. Now, back to Humanity Evolve.
1: Welcome back. This is Catherine Kalarka with Chris LaFranchi from OneReef.org. And we are talking about examples of worldwide conservation and reef prote- protection and creating vibrant ecosystems that help both humanity and our oceans. And just before the break, you were talking about uh, a particular organization. And, you know, we talk about it being, you know, One Reef and others are very scientific based. You know, it's very important to have it based on the fundamentals and also people And you were talking about what was fulfilling. And I'd I'd love to have you repeat that story about what happens when you make a difference internationally and what effect that has on them and what you're seeing.
2: Well, I think, you know, at some level, it becomes a little bit of a humbling experience because you realize right away that um, these Pacific Islanders have traditions uh, that they've employed uh, long before we arrived to to protect and manage their fish populations. Right. They don't work exactly as well as they do now because circumstances have changed. But but in the essence of them is still around. And so when we see those guys reconnect with them, and then sort of apply this fusion of good science and other things like some simple technologies to to kind of um, make these traditions contemporary in a way. Yeah, it's really um, not just scientifically interesting and kind of important in terms of what we're learning about reefs and and how they work and respond to shifting climate. It's really sort of um, fulfilling on an emotional level and it's heart rendering um, to watch people sort of recover control uh, of their reefs, reconnect with their culture, uh, remake it in a way that's contemporary and useful to them and to be assisting them in doing all that. Uh, it, with some humility, I think is something I've found to be just this hugely important in my life.
1: Uh, uh, it's yeah. something I,
2: I didn't anticipate, you know, way back in the day of Jacques Cousteau, and I can see how far <laughs> things have come. Um, but, it's, you know, it, it's th- this, this is the kind of thing that sustains us, uh, me and, and people who work around the, this field during right. difficult times.
1: Yeah. And I I think that's so um, um, an important evolutionary part of what we're doing is to also bring back what's the best in us. So actually allowing them to have the agency that allowed them to operate sustainably within the marine environment to actually come back. And it feels good. It's the same way as when we go to the beach and we start to pick up all cigarette butts, or we make sure that we recycle. I mean, all those things make us feel like we're having an impact, a positive impact, and that the beach is cleaner, or we, we're seeing the waters be cleaner in different areas around us, and lakes and rivers. And that makes you feel better. I mean, it just—it just naturally is fulfilling to be able to do that because it's—it's—it's—it's it's in, it's, it's instilling in us what we know is the right balance within our lives. So I really like that. I like the fact that the science is also cool, but the, the, the agency that's returned back to the people is also fulfilling and very heart-rendering heart or heart, heartful for you, That's so kind of cool. So th- if you look back in terms of you know things that you feel people can do, how can they get engaged in this? How, how can they be part of both the science and this fulfilling aspect? What would you uh, tell people to do? Well, I
2: think first of all, just gaining an understanding of what's happening uh, it, it, with this ecosystem we call coral reefs around the planet is, is the first step. If you don't understand it or connect with it in any way, it's, it's hard to, to take any kind of action. That's why that film, we showed that film, Chasing Coral, because I think that does the first job very well. Yeah. But far beyond that, I think, and this is kind of getting to the silver lining from my point of view. And it actually opens up opportunities for us to understand more about the people living in these far-front places and what they're doing to to kind of recover fisheries and how we can, even as individuals, become, uh, through these partnerships, become involved in all this. And you know, at first as an economist, I looked at it purely from the economic perspective, how can we create programs that have economic incentives to sort of drive people to make good commitments and not fish these areas for a while and so on? And that that is a really important part. But again, what sustains it and what makes it kind of fascinating and interesting in and adds just that nice silver lining is the feeling of of helping other people and being involved in, in groups that are Uh, taking control and recovering their fish stocks and clearly building resilience into reefs and that's being well measured by scientists who are also seeing it as a win-win for them because they're discovering uh, what reefs can do when they are well protected compared to not.
1: Absolutely. And you got... um and so, in terms of the actions, it seems like the what you're saying is that one become involved or be aware, right? Learn, mm-hmm. learn, learn the symbiotic, the amazing relationship between the algae and, and the coral itself, and and how this process works. It's explained really well in Chasing Corals, which you can see it uh, on Netflix or on the web, um, or, or through organizations like OneReef.org. You can learn learn about the ocean. It's it's phenomenally interesting, you know, and learn Learn from reputable organizations like Scripps, you know, look look for people that actually are conveying the science of what's behind that. And also realize you can make connections to our Pacific Island neighbors and and to people around the world and support organizations or, or local initiatives that resonate with you, that are in fact something you know makes a difference and you want to be part of if it's not directly or indirectly. So things that we can make choices in our everyday lives, is there things that we can do ourselves make a difference for the reefs or, you know, I mean, I've talked about things like, you know, not using plastic straws, you know, that's um, recycling, you know, and this isn't just, you know, this is not, this is common sense stuff. This is what is good to do. Not, there's no politics involved in this. This is just straight what is best for our planet. So, um, you know, are there little actions that people can take or get involved with that make a difference for our reefs?
2: Yeah, I mean, of course, everyone knows about the food and energy choices we make and how that is affecting our climate these days. I think that's not lost in too many people. Um, But the reason I created One Reef is because I felt that there was this huge opportunity to really take this highly direct action. Um, The problems we face around coral reefs are really solvable. Uh, Mm -hmm. not in a hugely deterministic way, but there's this kind of virtual army of Pacific Islanders out there who have an inherent incentive to protect the place outside their front doorstep, and they want to do it. The ocean and fishing is in their DNA. As soon as the right leader comes into a community and says, look, people, we don't have to live with this problem anymore. It's actually quite manageable, and there are people who live on the other side of the Pacific Ocean who also value these reefs. They see it as kind of this, this, this globally valued, to asset, if you will, biological right. asset. And so I created this organization to help those two groups connect with each other. So with a relatively small amount of, of, of a donation, we can create a lot of impact because it goes directly into the hands of people who are enabled by scientists and informed by them by good policies in places like Palau and are creating tools that we know work, like Marine Protected Areas. So. Right. As much as your diet and and energy and you know your plastics use uh, is very important, if you want to protect this super diverse uh, system on the planet that's going away quickly, um, consider you know contributing to these partnerships. They, right, uh, we are relatively financially we're we're so much wealthier, so a relatively small amount from us makes an enormous difference in their ability to do things. I'll give you just a quick example. So the rubber meets the road again for us yeah. when, when these communities agree to a science-based plan we call it a marine spatial plan of these areas they're going to not fish certain areas because those areas are going to have to recover from being overfished, and during that time they're not going to be able to catch as many fish so they need help from a partner to sort of bridge them through that period because in a lot of these places it's it's really hard to convince people not to fish and in some cases they need it it's their part of their livelihood right so um that's where these partnerships are so critical, but that's also where this sort of low hanging fruit exists. By just entering into these partnerships, um, working directly with communities, you can enable them to not fish areas long enough. Then when the recovery starts, you don't they don't need our help very much anymore because they're they're getting more fish from the spillover. Mm. Hmm. But to be quite honest, donating, making a financial donation to these kinds of partnerships, in my view, if uh, you can really care about coral reefs, is the single most powerful way to to affect change.
1: Mm. And and I think what you're saying is connecting connecting the where the highest ROI is because some people go well why should I care I gotta I gotta put food on my table I gotta send my kids to school I mean you know this is this I gotta take care of mine and I think this is part of the ocean and the planet is yours as well and I think what you're saying to us is a very small amount goes a long way in these where the where the caretakers are directly related to or directly involved with caring for their own coral reefs and that it doesn't take a huge amount to actually be make a global impact and connect yourself to the world and you know like the idea of actually connecting kids to to this you know actually having you know schoolrooms understand the impact of uh, of the polynesian reef care takers you know so i i think there is a it does matter what you do and it matters who you do this with and i think you're right about you know let's help those who have the biggest impact to, to actually locally care for our oceans uh and 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 in a way we're connected with their actions and we can feel part of it
2: that's right i mean again this is the economy is coming out of me but it, it costs us about three dollars annually on average for every acre of reef that we're able to, to partner up with a community to protect yeah and that cost is going down as we scale up and reap kind of the economies of scale so it's again it's it's a highly direct way um to ensure that a reef is gonna be about as healthy as it could be from this point forward, given the yeah. effects of climate change.
1: And and this is this is cool stuff, people. I mean, we have this most amazing planet that sits right next door to most of us in, in, in terms of the planetary next door, you know, and that you can explore and learn and there's lots of ways to visualize underwater and you can participate in what's going on and social media allows us to have conversations with people. So, you know, and and one of the things you can do is email Chris. So Chris has given us his email, so please stay in touch with him. He can be reached at Chris C H R I S at one that's onereef.org that's O-N-E-R-E-E-F dot org and you can email him and ask him questions and figure out how to get involved and stay connected I think it's important to keep this conversation going and it's important for all of us to be globally aware and make difference where it matters and it isn't a whole lot that you can do that you need to do in order to make a big impact to someone in Palau or Micronesia or in other parts of the world and to save our, our, our reefs and to save our fisheries and keep our ecosystem resilient. Um, It's been a a tremendous honor and a pleasure talking with you today, Chris. Thank you so much for being on the show. Is there one thing that you would like to comment or end the show with today?
2: Oh, I, I guess... You know, when I look around these days and I have teenagers at home, I just feel like we're becoming so disconnected from nature and really sort of losing that part of our well-being. So for me, um, it's not really just about making a donation and seeing uh, this partnership grow. It's it's also about recapturing this connection, not just with nature, but I I hate to say it like this, but kind of a part of ourselves that has been somewhat lost and that really counts a lot in terms of our well-being.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. We're... Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Connect with part of us, and part of us is water. (laughs) So it's it's a huge part of who we are is water, and a huge part of our planet is water. So let's stay connected to that, and and through learning and organizations and and uh, conversations, let's be part of it. Let's nurture what is best in all of us, and let that light be shining around the world. Thank you so much, Chris, for being on the show today. Again. Email Chris, stay in contact with him at chris at oneweef.org. Also, I can be found at Kath Calarco on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and also you can email me at info at I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been a great show. This is Catherine Calarco on Humanity Evolve.
0: Thank you for joining Catherine Calarco for this week's edition of Humanity Evolve. Be sure to tune in again next Tuesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. We'll talk again then.